Take your copy of the Bible and turn to our sermon passage today. I would recommend you get it for it will be a lengthy reading as we are covering Isaiah 13 through 20, so eight chapters of Scripture. I'm just kidding. I mean, the sermon is covering that, but we're not going to read all of that. Uh, while you're turning there, I'd actually make a note. Uh, one of the things that often we do in a preaching here uh, is exegesis. We bring the meaning from the text. We explain the text. We take what God has written and kind of uh, crack it open and break all the little tiny pieces together so that you get to see what it means. And we show our work, and that's what we kind of spend so much of our energy on. And uh, as a result, a lot of times you get kind of conversations about individual clauses uh, or sometimes conversations about individual words. And many of you, that's how you were taught to do Bible study, where you looked at every clause and you looked at every word and kind of cross-checked and everything. And all of that's good and right and proper and true, and I would encourage you to do that. If you only do that, though, you're missing out on a significant part of what God is doing in Scripture, which is He's not just building the little micro-arguments. He's also building big arguments. And so the sermon today is an effort to kind of hopefully help you see a little bit of that, not just that he's making micro-arguments at the paragraph level, but he's actually making big arguments almost at the book level. And eight chapters, okay, maybe not the whole book, but we're going to look at the movement of what God is doing. Now, as a result, I'm not going to read all eight chapters. I'm going to read chapter 13, though, uh, and we'll dip into 14 and 20 a bit more fully uh, as we go. I'm going to read quickly. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amoz saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal and cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail. For the day of the Lord is near, a destruction as destruction from the Almighty. It will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. 
Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in a day of His fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle, Or a sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through. Whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered, their wives ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon... The glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. There, ostriches will dwell, and their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant places. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures. And we thank you that they speak at the idea level, and that we look at ideas for understanding. And we thank you that those ideas happen in sentences and paragraphs and books. And we ask that you would give us aid as we look at this large part of Scripture. For Christ's sake, amen. I think It's a common thing for Christians to go to the Scriptures for help. It's something we're supposed to do. It's uh, the way the Bible's designed to operate, that when we're needy or when we're hurting or when we're sad or when we're happy, we go to the Scriptures. Help me figure out my problems. Help me figure out what to do. I don't know. Should I do this or should I do that? I, I, I don't know. Or sometimes even, uh, thankfully, we go to the Scriptures to figure out what kind of people we want to be. We'll read the Old Testament and say, I like that guy, I want to be like him. Or, uh, I don't like that person, I don't want to be like him. Or, uh, I like that lady, that's the kind of character I want to have. I I would guess, though, that perhaps one of the things that we maybe don't do as much as we should is to approach the Scriptures to kind of shape our personalities kind of, maybe? I mean, realistically, I think most of us are comfortable saying that we want the Bible to shape kind of how we act, and we want the Bible to shape how we think and how we feel, 
but maybe we wouldn't be quite so comfortable as to say that we want the Bible to change who we are, like our very person, that personality thing. And that's a bit of a struggle for many of us because honestly, as Americans, that's probably uh, the highest kind of gold standard of truth. You can tell me your ideas and your opinions. You can tell me this or you can tell me that. But the one thing you cannot really uh, kind of socially transgress is my personality. It's mine. I get to be who I want to be. In fact, uh, for more than 40 years, I've been told I can be whoever I want to be. Whatever I want to be. If I want to be an astronaut, I'll go be an astronaut. If I want to go play in the NFL, I'll go play in the NFL. I won't do that. But I think sometimes perhaps we don't really look at the Scriptures from that perspective going, no, like, how can the Bible change my personality? Can it change who I am? Change how I think about the world and feel and behave. And I think these eight chapters do that in kind of one specific area. And I think it's an area that on the surface, many of us would go, this is not a thing we struggle with. This isn't really kind of a a problem that I have. But then one of those things that the more you kind of begin to dig below the surface, the more you begin to realize, "Uh uh-oh, no, this, this might actually be the problem that I have. This might be a significant part of who I am. You know, where we are in the book is this kind of building battle between good and evil. Uh, interestingly, it's not the uh, kind of parties that you would initially expect it to be. Obviously, God is the good guy, but you would expect His people to kind of be subordinate good guys. The A team, and maybe not the B team, maybe the G, H, or J, I don't know, somewhere down there team, but you would expect them to be on the same team, but largely that's not been the arrangement so far. Through the book of Isaiah, we've seen that God is the good guy, and we've seen that his people are functionally the bad guys, largely because they've not been um, living in accordance with his law. They've not been uh, taking care of the poor. They've not been uh, practicing justice. They've not been practicing obedience and uh, wholehearted commitment to the Lord. And what's happening throughout Isaiah's ministry is he's preparing them really for uh, the comeuppance for that disobedience, for the bad guys, his people, God's people, the Jews, to receive the consequences of that long-term, deep-seated, committed disobedience. And what it's going to look like is destruction for the northern kingdom, 722, destruction for the southern kingdom, 586. And it's going to be bad. And God's been telling them that he's going to use uh, the pagans. He's going to be using even the worst villains. <laughs> if this is so far a conversation with the good guy is God and the bad guy are his people, he's talking about using the really bad guys as his weapons of war. And so you would have this really kind of emotional and intellectual battle As you read this going, how how do I think about good and evil? How do I think about the world around me? How do I think about villains in general? Now, this is a question that, again, I think probably many of us think about, or don't, I'm sorry, have stopped thinking about, because I suspect that many of us actually no longer think about anybody kind of in our sphere as a villain anymore. I mean, maybe that's because we've grown up in a 
last 50 years in this culture where we, we've only externalized villains outside of our, our, our nation. There's no more villains inside the nation. Maybe we've gotten rid of that term entirely. Um, we've kind of lost the idea of having some form of arch nemesis that you interact with regularly, I guess. I don't know. But we've really, in, in some ways, kind of had the fruit of liberalism come, come home to roost where we don't really think about evil at all. And that doesn't mean it's not there. It just means we don't think about it. The first thing that kind of I'd like for us to kind of contemplate from the text as we look at the larger movement of these eight chapters is that God is calling his people, and I want to talk personality, not just behavior. God is calling his people to be creatures of rest because the Lord defeats the enemies of his people. The Lord is calling us to be people of rest instead of something else we'll talk about in a moment. But because the Lord is the, the, the victor, he defeats the enemies of his people. Now, I recognize reading Isaiah chapter 13, reading it in its entirety, this is the kind of passage that is easy uh, for you to hear the first maybe three and a half verses and go, whoo, that's a lot, and then stop paying attention. I tried to read it with proper intonation, with proper emphasis, but even then, it's hard. Until you get to some of those verses that kind of catch your ears out, and you're like, wait, what now? I'm sorry, wait, what now? Verses like 14, 15, and 16. These inconvenient verses where you're saying, wait, God's going to use a nation that their punishment that they're going to implement on another is going to be Ravishing wives, plundering houses, and smashing babies. Things that I think we pretty much all universally say are bad ideas. Things we don't support, things we don't get behind. But if you actually look at kind of the larger flow of what's taking place in this chapter, it's extremely significant what God is doing because your ESV has helpfully noted this at the beginning. This is the judgment against Babylon. Now, Isaiah thus far has not been engaging Babylon in conversation. Isaiah thus far has largely been engaging Syria, the nation that's getting ready to invade the northern kingdom, 722. He's been engaging largely against one nation, the Assyrians, who are going to come in and destroy the northern kingdom. They're going to wipe it off the face of the map, and they're going to be villainous, awful, hateful, horrible, awful humans. But now Isaiah's changed gears and is now speaking to the Babylonians. The Babylonians are going to be the ones that then come in and invade the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom and wipe everybody off the map. And they're going to stay in power for a season until the Medes and then the Persians invade them. And we watch the kind of entire fruit basket shuffle of the Middle East start that has continued all the way to this day. But interestingly, what Isaiah is doing in many ways here is prophetically kind of getting ahead of the game in dealing not with just the nation that's going to invade, but the secondary nation that's going to invade and is beginning to kind of comprehensively work through in his prophecy, through what God has showed him, the destruction of the destroyers of the people of God. Assyria invading the northern kingdom, Babylon the southern kingdom, and now he speaks against the destroyers of the people of God. And listen to some of the language that God has spoken. Verse 3, I myself, the, the Holy One of Israel, the Almighty God, 
I am summoning my mighty men to execute my anger. I am the one. God is the one bringing judgment on Babylon. He is the one that's going to use the Medes and then ultimately the Persians to destroy this great nation, one of the great nations of uh, this point in history. The Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, is mustering himself an army. Verse 4 bringing them in as his weapons of wrath and indignation. Verse 5, he's going to use a nation to destroy another one. And the level of destruction that we get to see, is again, we kind of jump ahead to 14, 15, 16, some of those other parts of places, it's comprehensive destruction. Like, uh, it's comprehensive destruction. This is not the kind of gentleman's warfare where your fellows and our fellows go out and try to shoot each other, and at the end of the day, everybody goes home that's not been shot. 14, 15, and 16, this is the kind of warfare in which women and children are fair game. This is the kind of warfare in which it's acceptable to burn fields so that nations starve to death. This is the kind of warfare in which you burn the houses after you pass them so that people have no place to stay. They have no goods. They have no shelter. They have no food. So they die of exposure even if they don't die of warfare. This is complete and comprehensive destruction. And the interesting thing is that God is bringing complete and comprehensive destruction against the enemies of his people. I mean, think about verse 15 This is how comprehensive it is. Whoever is found, anyone that's found, will be thrust through. Whoever's caught is just going to be executed by the sword. It's just going to be finished. Everyone's going to die. The entire nation be put to the sword. But something a bit more significant is actually happening in the text. It's not just against Babylon as as one nation in one moment in time. This is not just uh, a prophecy, again, that's going to be executed in the mid-500s or uh, early 500s, late 500s. What's actually happening here is this wonderful thing that God does when he speaks about judgment coming is that he carries on two conversations at the same time. Usually, when you read about destruction in the Old Testament, God is carrying on a conversation with his people about the day that the world ends. But he uses one example immediately in front of them so they understand it. He wants to have a conversation with them on the day that time and space and matter and energy disappear the way that we know them. Have a conversation about the day that the earth disappears as we know it. The day in which everything is consumed by fire, the day in which all sins are made known, the day in which judgment comes and where all villainy is reconciled. But realistically, many of us are not intellectually ready to understand that, or our minds wander, our hearts wander. And so what he does for Israel is he gives them a primary example directly in front of them to teach them about the other thing. So that you have verses one through five where the Medes are introduced You have it explained uh, later specifically, like I said, 14, 15, 16, 17, and following is where it's actually explained the most clearly. But the interesting thing are those middle verses, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, right in that area. This is not the language of the Medes and the Persians. 6 through 12 is actually the language of the end of the world. 
Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Now that, anytime you hear that phrase, day of the Lord, in the scriptures, it should perk up your ears because it's referring to the last day. The day of the Lord is, well, complicated, referring to the last day or the first coming of Jesus, one of the two, depending on the context. What's happening here is this is referring to the end of time. Wail, for the day of the Lord is here, the destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. Everybody will be held uh, accountable. Everybody will be under judgment. Every human heart will melt. There will be no options left. Uh, They will be dismayed. Uh, Pangs and agony will cease. Everybody undergoes the judgment and it will be terrible. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Yeah, that sounds horrible. That's why you get verse 10. It's in cosmic language, isn't it? The stars and their constellations no longer give light. The sun no longer gives light. The moon no longer gives light. Why? Because the created order is undone. It's in many ways an uncreation at the end. It's the destruction of the world as we know it. But realistically, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. It's hard for us to understand how bad it's going to be. And so he gives them an object lesson of Babylon. Babylon's going to destroy Judah and Jerusalem, and then the Medes and the Persians are going to destroy Babylon. Now, it's going to happen in his timing. It's not going to happen the way that we want it. It's not going to happen exactly how we want it, but he's going to do it. And you think, okay, Michael, how in the world is this prophecy from the 8th century B.C. dealing with nations that no longer exist in any real actual fashion How is this supposed to impact my personality in any way? Well, I might say it this way. The more I kind of pastor and think about who people are and how our culture is, and the more I read and think about just kind of all the things diagnosing our American culture, uh, the more I think we might be, might be, I don't know for sure because I haven't studied everybody else, but we might be the angriest country on the planet. We might be. That wouldn't surprise me if we were in the top five at, at worst. And the issue is, as a country, we're angry, but we don't know what to do with our anger. We don't know how to process our emotions. In many ways, as a nation, we've been largely reduced to two-year-olds, right? That we, we have something that we feel, and we feel it strongly, but we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to feel. And so what does a two-year-old do? Sometimes they flail on the floor and swing back and forth, and sometimes they kick things or they punch their sister. They they don't know what to do, and so they act crazy. Now, why are they acting crazy? Is it always because it even makes sense to them? No, there's no mechanism inside to figure out how to process why I'm mad and why I'm angry and why the rage is just set in, and I want to do something with it, and I don't know what to do. I mean, think about it. That's why we have an entire nation of young men that hate themselves. That's why suicide is just massively trending for young people, young men specifically. That's why we have shootings. It's not the gun's problem, we all know that. It's the human heart. We have a nation that's angry. People that hate themselves and the way that they want to end their life is by ending others' lives with them. They hate, they hate, they hate. 
And we'd love to be able to say, well, that's outside of our world. That doesn't impact us. That doesn't impact the PCA until, what, three weeks ago? It did impact the PCA. With a sister church in Nashville. And we'd like to say, well, that's other people that are angry, but I'm not. And then I would just lovingly say, how many of you go about every single day with your irritation level boiling just below your eyeballs? And on a good day, you keep it below your mouth so it doesn't come out. And it's interesting that kind of built into this prophecy is the idea that like, look, God's people, you can be at peace. Because all of the enemies that you have, all of the people that have hurt you, that have been villainous to you, all of those people that have destroyed you, all of the people that you're angry with, if your anger is justified, God will take care of it. And if your anger is not justified, you should stop. But there's an element of this that actually gives us this freedom as God's people to say, look, I don't have to pretend like it didn't hurt. I don't have to pretend like I didn't suffer. I don't have to pretend like I'm not miserable. I can actually deal with all of the hurt and the heartache. I can acknowledge they were terrible to me. They treated me this way. They shouldn't have treated me this way. And then I can give it to God and be done with it. And go back to being an emotional, restful, peaceful wholesome person. I love that this is framed the way that it is, where you have this kind of prophecy against one specific nation in time and space that in the very center of it, kind of like an an Oreo, right? You have Babylon at the beginning, Babylon at the end, but right in the middle you have it. No, this is cosmic. This is the very fabric of how creation is designed so that no sin ever gets ignored. No sin ever gets ignored. I I really think that's a significant part of why our nation is so angry is because as we've increasingly over the last 50 years taught our, our nation, taught our children a naturalistic worldview that says there is nothing that happens life after death. Like this YOLO, this, this moment in time is all that you have. There's no kind of idea of grievances being dealt with in any way. And so you have an entire generation of children that are trying to figure out how, uh, when people hurt me, what do I do with that? Which is so different, actually, than how our country was founded, isn't it? I mean, it was foundational to our entire legal system was to assume that sometimes we get it wrong. And you know what we're going to do? Which way are we going to prejudice the entire legal system? Are we going to prejudice it so that guilty people actually get punished, uh, or maybe innocent people are more likely to get punished than the guilty, or is it so that you're innocent until proven guilty? We said, we knew, and our, our law code knew, if we're going to err, if we're going to mess up, we would rather let a guilty person go than punish an innocent person. Why would we rather let a guilty person go than punish an innocent person? Why? Because no sin is ever ignored. God ultimately will resolve it all. It's all brought up at the last day. This gives us the opportunity to be a people that don't have to defend ourselves. Think about how much easier your life would be if you didn't spend your energy defending yourself. You just moved on. That's fine. God's got it. He's got it. And just moved on. 
Think about how much more at peace you would be if you didn't carry your anger with you all the time. Think about how much more enjoyable people would be if you weren't just mad at them all the time. Right? For you older folks in the room, you haven't noticed that, but really there's been a generation and a half of people who've been raised on the internet, and one of the most reoccurring memes, uh, jokes, long-running jokes on the internet, is how much they hate people. How much they want to be away from people. How much they want to be isolated from people. Why? Because we, we, we bring so much rage with us constantly. I'm convinced a significant part of that is because we don't know how to deal with our anger for people who do actually properly hurt us. All right, so it gives us the opportunity to be a people of peace. The second thing is, uh, I think it gives us the opportunity actually to be a really forgetful people. And you go, well, what? How would that change things? Well, I mean, mean, I'm forgetful, but that doesn't seem to be helpful half the time. No, not that type of uh, forgetful, intentionally forgetful. Because here, interestingly, and this is why this entire section I took in one uh, one lump chunk, is you begin to see Isaiah really working through the bulk of his judgments, and you have verse, I mean, chapter 13, you have a judgment, again, your ESV is really helpful here, a judgment against Babylon, right? That's a nation that is to the uh, far east at this point. You skip to 15, or 14, you have, I'm sorry, um, 14, you have the king of Babylon in the latter part of 14. Then you have Assyria, which is not the far east, it's slightly east and slightly north. They're the ones that are going to get ready to invade uh, the northern kingdom. Then on the bottom, you have, uh, end of 14, you have a judgment concerning uh, the Philistines, Philistia. Then you have Moab in the end of, uh, or into chapter 15. Then 17, you have Damascus. Then 18, you have Cush, Ethiopia. Then 19, you have Egypt, And then 20, we're going to get to that in just a moment. But it's intriguing, really. What happens in this section of Scripture is that what starts with a prophecy against one specific nation in time and space, Babylon, who lives out in the east, who's getting ready to invade uh, the southern kingdom in 140 years or so, suddenly kind of multiplies and using kind of more perhaps common parlance, the Lord brings receipts. He, he goes through all of church history and goes, okay, look, we want to look at all of Israel's history. Let's go through every nation that still exists that have hurt my people. If there is a nation on planet earth that has hurt my people, let's put them in the list right here and then let's destroy them. This is an amazing thing because if you were at this point in history going to name all of the enemies of God that are kind of still existent, extant, You'd probably forget at least one of these. I mean, Cush, I, put, I wouldn't have put Cush in that list. I mean, there's conflict at some point in history past. But it's interesting that the Lord is saying, look, you can actually be a people who actively forget when people do you wrong because I never will. You don't have to store up hard feelings. You don't have to remember how they've taken advantage of you. You don't have to remember all this. You have the freedom to forgive and to forget because the Lord actually carries your honor, carries your name, and carries your history for you. I mean, think about that list. Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, Cush, and Egypt. That is the list of all all of the enemies that still exist that are not their relatives. That's all of them. It's everybody. It's largely from kind of 
east in and north down with one little weird hiccup of Damascus, but it's a comprehensive coverage of everybody that's hurt them. Now again, I, I would say maybe this is one of those areas where you think, well, how, how would that impact who I am and how I am? How would that shape my personality in any way? Well, and I, I think this is one thing, one of the things I've learned in my doctoral studies, one of the things I've learned actually since COVID, where uh, having had a brain starved of oxygen for a long time, it, your memory is a limited thing, right? It, it, you can only store so many facts, so many pieces of information. And some of you are already at that point in your life where you've maxed out the memory card. And so you know that every time you add five new pieces of information here, you've booted five old pieces of information there. That's really irritating, isn't it? Where you're like, I remembered this thing, yeah! And then you have no idea what the other thing is that you forgot, and half the time it's something even more important. But the thing I think that's perhaps the most surprising to me is how many bits of that memory card we use to permanently store up the things that other people did to us to do us wrong. I mean, it's amazing, right? Some of us might not know our wives or our husbands or our children's birth dates, might not even remember the color of their eyes, but we can remember exactly how Uncle Ralph was rude to us 38 years ago that Thursday afternoon in November, but not at Thanksgiving because for that year we were together two weeks early. Why? Why? Why do we spend so much of the limited brain power that God has given us storing up hateful things? Friends, that's called bitterness. That's exactly what that is. It's just bitterness. It's storing up all of the miserable things in our lives and intentionally trying to kind of keep them in our minds and to make them be a part of us so that they percolate into our souls so that we are shaped by our hate. We become shaped by 40 years of bitterness toward an ant that was grumpy or a Christmas that didn't have the right present or a spouse who that one time really did say the one stupid sentence and it was bad or whatever else it is. And it's intriguing how that, it really, it, it's shocking for that memory card that we have, we, we store up that major chunk in the middle, so many of us, with hurtful and hateful things that we just can't let go. And as a result, we reduce the capacity that we have for every other part of our lives substantially. Why can't we remember anything? Well, because you already filled your memory with the stupid things and the evil things. What God is inviting us to do here, I think, is actually to be those kind of people that intentionally forget to be those kind of people that it is actually the outworking of the rest that we saw in the previous point. If, if we are those people that have the ability to be peaceful, to be restful, to trust in who God is and to trust in his promises, I don't have to remember any of the ways that anybody ever did me wrong. Because God does. I don't have to cling to them because God won't forget. I don't have to store them up because God will remember in fact, actually, in many ways, you might even go so far as to say, I think what it's calling us to be are those kind of people that have the shortest memories for when we've been done wrong. 
Now, that's not to say that there aren't trauma things that need to be worked through or wounds that are deep to the soul or deep to the heart or deep to the mind that require intense, we might call it spiritual surgery. It's not to say there isn't a such thing as spiritual surgery. What I am saying though is it gives us the the freedom to be those kind of people that don't have to cling to this. They don't have to cling to the hate and the bitterness and the grumpiness. And you say, well, why? Why does this even matter? I mean, okay, sure, God is going to defeat all of our enemies. Okay, sure. Okay, God's never going to forget the ways that we've done wrong, been done wrong. Okay, sure. Why does that even matter? Okay, going a bit more quickly. Well, the whole thing matters because he loves us. That's really the fun part of this is that in this middle of eight chapters of just pure destruction where he basically is incinerating an entire subcontinent, hinting at him incinerating the entire world. You have a reoccurring theme that runs throughout it. Look at chapter 14. Those first two verses. In the middle of this, you know, burn the entire world to pieces. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob, his people. And again, will again choose Israel, his people. And will set them in their own land. Now again, land is the idea of of blessing uh, and stability. And sojourners sojourners will join them. That's Gentiles. That's uh, us, really, most of us in the room. There are a handful that aren't. Uh, sojourners that will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob will all be brought together uh, into one nation, uh, Jew and Gentile, um, slave, free, Scythian, the whole, we're, we're all together. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them. And Lord, this is going to be a, a wholesome relationship where all of God's blessing is given and the enemies become the captives, no longer the rulers. We are blessed. Why? Because God loves us. He loves us with a real and full and total and comprehensive love. And, and I love that for New Testament Christians, this should be a very um, obvious point to make. It shouldn't be hard. You realize that the people who are hearing this, they actually in many ways have no ultimate proof that God loves them. I mean, they have the exile, Lord bring, or the Exodus, I mean, I'm sorry, the Exodus, the Lord brings them out of Egypt, but then the people sin and they all die in the desert. And they sin and they're bitten by snakes and they're sin and they're swallowed by the ground where it eats them. And they have this long running kind of understanding in their mind that it's so much about if you obey the Lord, he blesses you. But so there'd be kind of no long running hope other than God's promise that he's gonna take care of me. We, on the other hand, as New Testament Christians, we actually have the Gospels to go back and look backwards at and to say, no, look, (laughs) we never could do it in the first place. The whole point was building to Christ, the one who would be our Savior, the one who would be our hope, the one whom the Scriptures say every promise is yes and amen in Jesus. He fulfills every promise. So now I don't have to look forward in hope. I actually look back in hope. And it's why we ask you, right, every one of you, when you come in for joining the church, new member interviews, we ask you if you're going to go to heaven, if you know that for sure, and then we ask you, why are you going to heaven? And I love the fact that now, that's a future-oriented question, isn't it? Why am I going to go to heaven? But everybody understands that it actually requires a past tense answer, because Jesus died 
but didn't stay dead. We have proof. I know the Lord loves me. He sent his son. As a result, I can rest. I can can put down my weapons of war. I can put down my emotional armaments. I can put down my southern social, we'll call them graces that are used to be weaponized against us. I can put all of that down because the Lord loves me and he's gonna take care of me. And in fact, it actually empowers me to do something different. Now, if you go look through this, and I would encourage you to read this this afternoon. These, um, <laughs> whew, these oracles for all of the nations are rough reading. And I don't mean it rough reading in the sense of it's difficult English. It's rough reading because it's so comprehensive, dev- comprehensive devastation. Uh, and in fact, actually, if you kind of pay attention, each nation has a, a devastation that connects to one of the things that that nation is famous for. Uh, so like Egypt, it's, it begins with their gods are destroyed. Egypt's famous for their gods, and the Lord is like, their gods are nothing. I'm the real God, and it destroys them. Yeah, but what it actually gives us opportunity to do is, is chapter 20. Chapter 20 is, I think, perhaps the weirdest chapter in the entire Bible. Okay, maybe not the weirdest, but it's in the top five. And I'm just going to read this part because it will probably melt some of our brains, and I assume most of our middle school boys are about to get a chuckle. I know that because I'm still a middle school boy and I get a chuckle too. In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon the king of Assyria came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah the son of Amoz saying, go, loose the sackcloth from your waist, take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. So suddenly, Isaiah gets what is comfortably said the worst pastoral call in church history, where at this point, he is then called to become a sermon, not in words only, but now a sermon in dress, which is none. And verse 3, this is where, again, you get the chuck, you just can't not giggle. Then the Lord said, as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years. Three years. Now again, remember, where is Isaiah ministering? Anybody remember? Off it, don't answer it. Answer in your head. He's, he's royalty. He's priesthood. He's, he's actually in like the city proper and is interacting with the elite of society. Right? This in our modern kind of modern setting would be like the chaplain of either the White House or like the House of Representatives just going naked for three years. Going into actual business that way, actually just walking everywhere that way for three years. And it's like, wow, that's uncomfortable. I'm thankful I pastor in a different time in a different space. But the thing that's interesting is the explanation as to why God was doing it is that Isaiah has become a sermon in human form. If we're going to use the theological word, it's he's become a sermon incarnate. The Lord said, as my servant Isaiah has walked naked barefoot for three years, as a sign and a portent prophecy against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, the naked and the barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope. What he's done is his embarrassing and ashamed condition has been an active sermon for the people of God. 
so that they had opportunity to learn and grow. Because you know exactly how this played out, right? The Lord told Isaiah to do this in private. And so Isaiah's been ministering in the palace. He's been ministering with the government, you know, the way he has every day for the past 20 years or whatever. And one day he just walks in naked. And you know everybody in the room did the same thing. What's up with him? Right? I mean, if it was here, nobody would ask to his face, right? Ask behind his back, which in Eastern culture like this, they probably did the same thing. Like, seriously, though, like, what's up with Isaiah? Like, did he forget to put on clothes this morning? I mean, I know everybody's had that dream where they went to school and forgot to put on pants. Like, did he live it out? Like, what's up? And maybe if you didn't hear it the first day, you know you would have asked it the second day. And if not the second day, you would ask the third day. And by the time the second week would have happened, you would figure out, like, something really weird is going on. The local pastor's not wearing clothes anymore, and I can't figure it out. And so what would they do? What would everybody have done at some point? You would have gone and asked, what is the deal with the nudity, man? Why are you going naked? And interestingly, what Isaiah then gets to do is to proclaim the word of God so that the people will hear it and believe it and see it. Now, that last element is the key part, is that his ministry now has become this opportunity to speak the word and to live the word. Now, this is where I'll kind of end with application quickly. If we are those kind of people that are not constantly defending ourselves, that are not constantly angry, that are not wrestling with the anxiety that comes from anger, if we are those that have begun to trust the promises of God and rest in Him, we have the privilege to be those that preach sermons with how we live. Now, thankfully, for the vast majority of us, it will not require nudity in any fashion. But what it will require is us to live in front of our children and to live in front of our neighbors and to live in front of our fellow church members, and to live, but not just live, but speak. That's the key, is that Isaiah is both talking and living. And that's actually, I would say, the challenge for us. People, if you have been changed by the Lord Jesus, and you have the Holy Spirit of God residing within you, um, the Scriptures call us a kingdom of priests, what was the priest's task? to speak and live in some ways. And that's your job now, to speak the words of Christ, to speak the truth. And it may be simple. It might be Sunday school answers. It might be small. Go teach kindergarten. It might be just normal, casual conversation. Look at what God is doing. But to speak the promises of God and then live in a way that it makes it easy to believe. Live in a way that it makes it easy to believe. You know, I suspect, as I started, many of us don't think about approaching the Bible from that perspective. How can I shape my personality according to the Scriptures in a way that makes Jesus look beautiful and makes my evangelism a little bit easier? To be candid, some of us, our evangelism is a little bit harder, isn't it? Because we haven't kind of finished working through this. 
Maybe, as we look at this passage as a whole, read some of it this afternoon, it'll give us a chance to contemplate that the Lord takes care of us and we can be his people. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. It's wild passages of Scripture. Thank you that I'm not called to Isaiah's call. Lord, we ask that you would make us to be your people, humble, healthy, and holy. For Christ's sake, amen.